Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. There's a lot of community going on in our world right now, isn't there, with the uh, Occupy Wall Street and the demonstrations that are going on around our country. What do you think? You think those demonstrations around the country are going to continue? Are we going to have an American version of what's called the Arab Spring? Or is this going to just be a temporary flash in the pan and peter out? What are you thinking about it? Does it matter to you? How do you feel about it? How do you feel about your health? By the way, today's program uh, is going to be a call-in program. Ask Dr. Miller. Call in and ask me anything. I hope you'll ask me something within a field that I know something about, but you're welcome to ask anything you want. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. I'll be doing news and notes. You can interrupt me at any time. I'm also going to be reading some letters that you all uh, sent to me. Uh, And again, just uh, feel free to call in, and I hope you do. Um, News and notes in psychology and medicine. Here's more bad news about television viewing. You've all heard about it from time to time. Now, there's actually some data. For every two hours watched daily, death rates increase by 13%. According to a recent analysis in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is arguably the most prestigious journal in the United States, so this isn't uh, boo-hoo uh, horse hockey, this uh, may be the real McCoy. It turns out that um, they, they did monitor a thousand people, and not only does the death rate raise 13% for every two hours of television watch daily, The study also found a 20% increased rate of diabetes for every two hours watched daily. They say, well, that's not surprising since heavy TV viewing often leads to heavy TV viewers. Well, what about multivitamin mineral pills? Many of you have asked me uh, over the years my thoughts on them, and uh, I think you know my thoughts on them, but I'll say them again. Uh, The European scientists think that Americans are totally uh, off the deep end with regard to vitamins. They kid around and they say Americans have the most expensive urine in the world because we eat all these vitamins and then we urinate them out. Um, So my uh, my position for many years has been, you know, eat a balanced diet, Uh, protein, fruits, vegetables, green leafy vegetables, and uh, balance your diet and save a fortune on, uh, on vitamins. And what are you buying when you buy vitamins for the most part? You're buying the bottle, the label, and all the advertising that goes along with them. Well, I've been validated again. I guess one of the things about living long enough, as I've been had the good fortune to do, is that a lot of things that I've believed for years now are getting some scientific credibility behind them. Here's a study. 182,000 residents of California and Hawaii were studied for 11 solid years. Research on multivitamins. Well, the well-designed studies have not found a benefit. Hear that, folks? Not. Mike's looking at me with a quizzical look on his face. Yes, Mike, 182,000 people were studied multivitamins they vary greatly 
So even if there are benefits or harms, it's really hard to know which components are responsible and at what doses. Basically, save your money and eat a balanced diet, I think is the bottom line of that whole thing. What do you all think about it? What do you think about that, Michael? Well, it sounds like, from the information I've read, that you might want to err on the safe side and just take one multivitamin to get some of those trace uh, minerals and vitamins that you might be missing in your diet. So there's the voice of reason, and he's right, isn't he? If you can afford it, why not take the vitamins? There's no big risk that we know of, and you're possibly covering the base, and worst case, if you can afford it, you're spending a little money and you're putting out expensive urine. Maybe the thing to do is people who take vitamins should urinate outdoors if they can around their homes in the privacy of their, of their neighborhoods, by the way. We're not uh, going out on that limb. Let's move on to something a little more liquid here. Uh, claims that don't hold water. You know, we, for years now, I've believed that uh, I have to drink eight ounces of, uh, of water every hour. I see you, Mike, you're shaking your head also, right, Michael? Well, here's a study that says you don't need to drink eight glasses of water a day to prevent dehydration and stay healthy. In fact, you don't need to do that at all. How come we've been hearing it then? Well, some people think the reason we've been hearing it is because the bottled water industry have been putting that forth. What an interesting little thing. Remember my old uh, axiom, TWO, tap water only? TWO, tap water only? Don't spend your money on bottled water? What are you buying? Glass and a label in the water. Remember, some years ago, it was discovered that some one of the big bottled water companies were just filling up the bottles in a warehouse from the tap. Well, it's a myth. According to the University of California Berkeley wellness letter, you don't need to be drinking water. If you're healthy and you're just doing your regular life, your fruits and vegetables, which are 90% water, will provide the fluid you need. And what, the, what they're saying here, what the uh, California Berkeley uh, letter, wellness letter is saying, let your body be your guide. If you're thirsty, drink water. If you're not thirsty, you're in good shape, contrary to possible uh, to belief out in the, in the world. Well, popular, contrary to popular belief, that word seemed to have slipped out of my consciousness there for a second. Did you all know that, um, did you know that the nation's jails have become the new mental hospitals? Did you know that, Michael? The jails have become the new mental hospitals. Yes. You see, 200 years ago, the most common treatment for serious mental illness was jails. That was right about the time we used to still chain people up in caves. And thousands of people who, who are suffering from uh, what we would nowadays call, uh, I don't even want to use the words, what we'd call them. But let's just say that people who suffered mental illness were locked away, they were forgotten, they were put in jails, and then you may, those of you who studied this, remember that in the first half of the 19th century, Dorothea Dix and other reformers managed to put up a big fight, and it would transfer thousands of individuals out of the jails and into psychiatric hospitals. Well, you also know, so, by the way, in 1880, in 1880, less than 1% of all the inmates in jails were mentally disturbed, were seriously mentally ill. 
How about now? Less than 1% in 1880. Now, 2011, 7.2%. 7.2%. It's a tenfold increase. All over the country, the jails, we're not, we're not talking now about federal prisons and state prisons. We're just talking about just the jails have become uh, institutions for the mentally ill. What are we going to do about it? Just another one of our, another one of our social problems. Why am I talking about this? Because if you if you have someone in your in your family who is suffering from some form of mental illness, you really need to pull the family together and see what kind of social services if you're that you can avail yourselves of, what kind of private services if you can afford them. What can you do for this person? We all know that, that mental illness does not happen in a vacuum. If you've got somebody in your family that's suffering from it, most likely, if you understand it, the whole family, the whole family is affected. And the more you can do to get this person some form of help, the less likely they are to come before the judicial system. Because if, if we don't get them help, there's a high percentage of folks who have mental illness are going to come uh, to the attention of the police. They're going to do something. They're, it could be as little as just walking around in a big oval on the street over and over again until they come to the attention of the police. It could be getting involved with drugs, which often happens uh, to people who are mentally ill. Um, it, it, it could be, uh, you know, various things that are going to bring them to the attention of the police and then they're going to be taken to jail and then we have a mentally ill person being treated by the judicial system, which is just, in a word, wrong. The number here is 707-937-5103. What is it, Michael? Well, I'm just not... Uh Sure, we're done with the water issue at this point, you know, just ah, stepping back a stage. Okay, let's go back. Because, you know, I used to uh, have issues with kidney stones, and how I found to get away with that, from that is flooding my body with water. I drink a lot of water. I think of it as basically uh, just like oil in the crankcase of a car. You know, you don't work too well without... Uh, without good liquid in your system. And, uh, and a lot of people around the nation have been uh, uh, diagnosed with dehydration because they don't drink enough water. All well, the bodily yeah. things get kind of concentrated in your system. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, there seems to be a preponderance of information out there that we should drink a lot of water. And now, how do we square that with this article? Well, this is more than an article. This is the University of California wellness letter coming out of the University of California. They're saying, here are some of the myths. Drinking lots of water improves kidney function. They say, no, it does not improve kidney function. It does, uh, drinking water helps the kidney eliminate toxins. They say, no, it doesn't help the kidney eliminate toxins. That's all just a bunch of bunk. There's no scientific, it doesn't bathe the organs in extra fluid and, and continue function. I see the quizzical look. Somebody's trying to call through over here. Let's see if we'll take that call, Michael. Uh, we're getting it. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I have a couple of questions for you. Um, one about the kidneys and the water. The kidneys are like a filter. And that brings me to one of the questions about when the body does crave that water. And uh, what 
your idea is on heavy metal uh, toxicity, like lead, mercury, and copper, and pesticides, and the effects on the nervous system, and uh, why it is that uh, when people uh, back in the days when children were brought into the dentist and uh, had no no say so in receiving amalgam materials in our mouths and uh, why it is that Medi-Cal refuses to take them out, why it is that the testing is flawed in Western medicine to uh, diagnose for heavy metals uh, because uh, things like mercury are only uh, shown in regular blood tests uh, the first three weeks of toxicity and after that it goes into the tissues and the only way to tell is through an IV what kind of heavy metals you have in the system and uh, I've been getting the runaround for 15 years. All right, let me see. From if... my family, but, but wait, I'm not done, please. Okay. Uh, family, uh, in a lot of cases, of uh, mental illness could possibly be the cause of the mental illness. So it seems odd to have the family be the ones to admit or commit one of the people in the family when it could be genetic, like diseases like porphyria, and why aren't they talked about? Because it's not just a mental illness, it actually affects the liver and the nervous system, and it is a, a dominant genetic disease that could be caused by that and not just by drug addicts. Okay, and, uh, very good questions. I've got three of them written down, and I'm going to do my best to answer them. As far as heavy metal toxicity... There is no doubt that if you listen to some of these heavy metal bands over and over again with the volume turned up, it's going to be toxic to your system. I mean, how much can you take? There's only a certain amount. You can listen to a little heavy metal, but after that, I think you better take a break and maybe listen to some Mozart. As far as the heavy metals in the body, there is no evidence, there's no scientific evidence that the mercury that's put into an amalgam, by the way, what is an amalgam? When you mix mercury with silver or you mix mercury with gold, it, it forms a, a bond and it forms a hard metal. You remember that mercury itself is a liquid. Any of you who have played with it, as I did with having a father who was a dentist, I played with mercury a great deal when I was a little boy. And mercury is a liquid, but when you when you knead it together in, in, with a mortar and a pestle, with silver or gold, then it, it bonds and it forms. It's not a compound, but it does form a, a metal. And this is used, as you well know, for, for uh, fillings. Everything I've been told, I could be getting erroneous information, but everything I've been told by researchers on this topic and from the American Dental Society... Um, uh, Jack Taggart, uh, Dr. Jack Taggart at the medical school, uh, dental school in, in the University of California, who I've communicated with on this very issue, tells me that there is no evidence in the whole United States of people uh, getting uh, toxic from, um, from dental fillings. And yet there was this whole thing that went on, as we all know, where people were having the fillings removed from their mouths. And you're welcome to do it, but it's not based on science at this point, and it's not based on any pharmaceutical company trying to sell mercury. It's just there's no evidence for it, and that's the reason that Medi-Cal refuses to pay. You ask the question, why won't Medi-Cal pay to take the fillings out? They won't pay to take the fillings out because there's no scientific evidence that taking the fillings out will, uh, will be helpful uh, to one's health. Furthermore, it's important for you all to know that um, mercury itself, the liquid mercury, um, I see there's a caller trying to get through. Please be patient, and we will definitely get to you. I, I want to hear everything you all have to say. 
Uh, mercury, the liquid mercury does not bioaccumulate in the human body. You could just about sit in a vat of liquid mercury or drink it and, and, uh, and, and it comes right through us. We don't bioaccumulate the liquid. What we do bioaccumulate is mercury in compounds. So say when mercury gets together, uh, in, so when a fish eats mercury and converts it to something called methylmercury, I don't know if you all want these arcane details, and then we eat the fish, then we accumulate that form of mercury in a compound but not plain ordinary mercury itself and not the mercury that's in the teeth. So that's all I know about it and um, on, to, uh, on to the next topic. Um, somebody here wrote in and said, would you please review the six steps for taking psychedelic medicine that your guest, uh, Dr. Fadiman, described on your program a few weeks ago? The six steps for taking psychedelic medicine uh, the set, the setting, the sitter, the substance, the session, and the life group thereafter. The set, the set is your mental set. What are you thinking about? What are you intending to do? What is your intention? What is your mindset? Where are you at? Are you in angst? Are you clear? Are you doing this for, for inner space travel? Are you trying to have a party? You know, where's your head at before you take one of these medicines is the set. The setting is the physical environment. If you remember, the recommendation was peace and quiet. If you ever do one of these, uh, maybe if you go to a country where they're legal and you're able to experiment, we're of course not talking about any experimentation in this country because it's illegal. Um, but the setting, so it was recommended a beach or a natural setting, a woods in the country and so on. The sitter, set setting and sitter, the sitter is the guide, having a person to be your protector. Uh, should anything arise where you need help of any kind, be it something uh, to drink or just something to calm you down. The substance is the psychedelic medicine set, setting sitter. Substance is the medicine itself, and I won't go into the dosages here. The session is, how, is the length of time that you commit to this. That's number five. And the sixth was the life group thereafter, meaning you come out of a psychedelic session, you have information that's brand new to you, do you have people to share this with or do you have to hide from your friends because you're afraid if you tell them that you've gone someplace and taken this medicine, they're going to put you down or you're going to be treated like some kind of criminal. So those are the six set, uh, steps. The set, the setting, the sitter, the substance, the session, and the life group. And thank you for sending me that email. Let's take that call, Michael. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and thanks for your patience in holding on. You're on the air. Well... Hello? Yes, hi, are you there? Yes, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Great, great, sorry, I made that uh, terrible mistake of listening to the radio while I was calling in on the phone, but I've turned off the radio. I had a question concerning Occupy Wall Street. Is this my friend Wayne Anderman in Florida? Uh, yes, but that, 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 that's as far as we can go. <laughs> you, you have identified me, yes, sir. And, uh, I beg your pardon, I, should, I, I slipped, I'm, I, I shouldn't have done, I'll erase it, erase, erase. No, 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 no worries. Is this no Fred worries. Harrington in, uh, in Tacoma, Washington? <laughs> this is All right, what's your question? Um, it, it has struck me concerning um, uh, Occupy Wall Street. It has struck me that some of these people are unemployed. Some are students with school loans they can't pay back. People who need health insurance, a portion of the crowd, homeless people that have existed uh, in that state prior to the past three years of economic woes and that we have a collective of people where the common thread seems to be anger and frustration 
that have united them under this Occupy Wall Street banner. And the question is, twofold, what are the societal implications of such causes which are rallied from such a wide range of dissonant individuals who, under better circumstances, have very little in common with each other? And in that case, is this really a mass movement of individuals rather than an individual movement of the masses? Mm, very nicely said. Very nicely said. Is this a mass movement of individuals, or is this a movement of individuals united? And what do our listeners... Is that your first question? Did you have another one? No, that, that it, it, was, it was twofold. What okay. The implications yes. Of, of this? Okay, thank you very much. I'll do my best to answer. The societal implication and the causes. Well, I see the, uh, the societal implications as being that whenever throughout history the haves have eaten too much of the pie and the have-nots are pushed down, there is uprising. We go back 2,000 years ago to ancient Rome and we had the forum and in the forum was the Senate and over a period of hundreds of years the have-nots got representation and that they, they had tribunes who represented the, the, uh, the people. And our modern-day government, based on, very much based on the Roman system, has the Senate and then the House of Representatives, the lower house. In Parliament, there's an upper house and a lower house. And the lower house is supposed to be the house that represents the people. The upper house, the Senate in our country, um, represents... The, the nobility, if you will. And so we have the descendants of that system in our very system. And actually, it plays out that way, because if you look at the net worth of the senators in the United States and compare the average net worth of our senators, the hundred of them, to the average net worth of the congressmen, the senators are worth a lot more, interestingly enough. And why is that? Well, there are two senators from every state. That means, and there are many congresspeople from most states. And so it means that to get a Senate seat, it costs a lot more. That means you've got to be, for the most part, in a much better position financially or have enough of corporate backing. So societal implications of what's going on are that there's a tension that is happening around the world between the haves and have-nots. Now that tension is always in play, but when it gets way out of balance, particularly way out of balance with it, the haves are, as I said, eating up too much of the total pie, then the have-nots begin to express themselves. And that's why uh, with the man, man who set himself on fire in Tunisia was able to set off what's called the Arab Spring because there were people all over the Arab countries, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who were have-nots and who have been have-notting for years and years. And so a little spark can bring them into play. And that's what's going on in the United States. And that's why, Wayne and, and listeners, there are so many people from different walks of life who are occupying uh, Wall Street because the theme, I mean, with a theme that they have in common, as they call it in their own signs, are we are the 99%. We are the 99%. And from my perspective, 
not only are the are these uh, the, the economic fallout uh, presenting itself at these demonstrations, but the psychological fallout is presenting itself all over the country, and that's part of what I I, I talk about, and I, I will always be talking about until we do something about it is the enormous pun intended overweight and obesity epidemic. This is a spiritual epidemic. This is something that is that is controllable, and it's the people expressing themselves through comfort food for a great deal of discomfort that is being caused by this plutocratic oligarchy who are hogging up, uh, hogging up the money. Actually, and we shouldn't even call it money. I mean, we can call it money. But what is it really? Money is condensed energy. We should call it power. We should call it green power or green money because it is, it, it, money is condensed energy and energy is a power force, force and the power is used by those who accumulate it and unfortunately for, the, for a great deal of the time they use it as a power over others rather than a power with others. And that's one of the difficulties and that's part of why we're having the uprisings. Because when power gets used over, that means those who have that over them are being weighted and pushed down, and sooner or later they're going to rise up. Sooner, sooner or later, all of us who are not part of that 1% are going to rise up, and rightfully so. So I hope I answered your question in some coherent fashion. And um, oh, let's see, here's another letter. My son is on SSRIs. Uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You remember those? These are medicines that prevent a certain neurotransmitter called serotonin from being reabsorbed back into the body. And the theory is that when you prevent the reabsorption of this serotonin, again, prevent the reabsorption of the serotonin, then the serotonin builds up because it's being prevented from being reabsorbed, and the buildup of it supposedly is the antidepressant. You're going to hear in December two of the world's experts on this topic, on this very program, and they're going to be talking about the dangers caused by these SSRIs. I think you're going to hear them say that they believe that these medicines are actually causing mental illness. So you'll have to tune in. This is a teaser. You're going to have to tune in December, the first week in December of this year, and you'll hear Robert Whitaker and a few other people who have researched this area. Um, another question here. Is it possible to detox from alcohol and other drugs such as cocaine and heroin without going to the hospital? Uh, in, in a word, yes. Typical detox from alcohol and other drugs and cocaine and heroin takes 72 hours. Uh, we do have in our culture something called social model detox. It's a place where you go for 72 hours or maybe, uh, for, you know, maybe four days, 72 hours, three days, three full 24-hour days. It's a place where you go and you... Uh, and you detox, social model detox. Sometimes it's a, it's a private home. You can do it out camping if you have uh, some friends or family to watch you. You can do it any place that's safe. Remember, setting, set and setting. You can do it in a safe setting. Uh, my own research um, uh, certainly uh, demonstrated 
that uh, that hospitals were not necessary. I, did, I detoxed fifteen hundred people in the nineteen eighties from all combination of uh, of drug uh, and alcohol use, and um, and without hospitalizing any of them. So the answer to your question is yes. Uh, how you do it, you know, you've got to know what you're doing, and because there are some. Uh, some um, effects that, that happen with detox, not as serious as what you see in the movies, but there are some, and so it's not a thing to be done with, uh, by an amateur by any means, but you do, it does not have to be done in a hospital. Okay, back to uh, more news and notes. By the way, the telephone number here is 707-937-5103, 707-937-5103. Please call in with your questions. Well, sure, let's take that call, Michael. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, I love listening to you. Thank you. And Rosa, every Tuesday. Oh, my gosh. And I get to hear you. <laughs> to hear you. Or every other, anyway. Thank you so much. Um, I wish my mother were alive to hear you say that. <laughs> your, um, your SSRI comment was really interesting. I was on them for 12 years after a really bad divorce, and I tried to get off of them a couple of times. What were you on? And what... I was on uh, Paxil. Paxil, right. And I was on initially 40 milligrams, and then that was way too much, and which is actually considered the standard starting dose. That's which right. Which I think is amazing. Yes. Um, because it's debilitating. So I went to 20, and then I cut myself down to 10, but I noticed when I tried to get off of it, and this sounds really strange, and it's kind of hard to describe, but I would get this sound in my head. It, it would. I would get dizzy, and and I would get the sound like a strong wind blowing through my head, and and it was very disconcerting. I'm an educated person. I'm you know I um, so it wasn't as if I was using other substances and I was you know and I was drinking or anything. It wasn't anything like that. It was just that the only thing I could associate it with was that, and I've been off of it for three years. <clears throat> And I still, every once in a while, get that that sound and that dizziness in my head. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you've ever heard about that, and if it's possible that it's somehow related to those medicines I took. Because I never took any medicine before, and I don't take any medicine now. Terrific question. Terrific question. So I'll take my answer on the air. Okay, great. Thank you. You're Bye. very welcome. You heard the question. What she's saying is she started out taking one of the SSRIs, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. The name of it is Paxil. And she started out taking 40 milligrams and then 20 and then 10 and took herself off. And then the symptoms appeared. This is exactly what you will hear, I believe, in December when these experts come on the program as one of the consequences of taking the SSRIs, namely that they're saying that your brain chemistry gets altered by taking the medicine so that when you then take yourself off the medicine, you go through a withdrawal, just like going through a withdrawal from cocaine or from, uh, from alcohol or various other drugs. And so the withdrawal from the medicine creates an imbalanced condition that you then have to recover from. And as far as your question of could you be hearing this swish sound or this airy sound, you know, six months or a year later? And the answer is yes. It doesn't necessarily mean that, and I don't think it means that you're still going through withdrawal uh, physically, but you know, we all know that 
the separation between the mind, the body, and the spirit are just uh, languaging separations, but the system itself doesn't separate itself like that. The mind doesn't separate itself from the body or the body from the mind. And, and the sensing system that we have is a total sensing system, and it's, it's, it's uniquely and exquisitely sensitive. If you ever have any doubt about the sensitivity of your, of your system, just take a hair off your head and touch your body anywhere in your body. Touch your toe, and, 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 and you'll notice that you feel it. You feel it. You, and in the same way, if a fly lands on the rump of a 2,000-pound horse, the horse feels it. Imagine what kind of an electromagnetic sensing system one would have to build so that if a fly came into your room and landed on the rug, it would register in a meter. That would be some system. What do you think about that, Michael? You've been involved with that. Would be, that would be quite a sensitive system, wouldn't it? To measure a fly landing on a rug in a room. Let's say you had something, you want, you had something so expensive in a museum that you had all these you know, waves, electromagnetic waves to an alarm system, and you wanted it so sensitive that if a fly came into the room, the system would go off. Oh, my word. But that's the system that we own, that we live with. That's how sensitive we are. So did I answer your question? Uh, yes, you could be having psychological flashbacks to that, and I suggest you use, get some, do some meditation and inner work, and you'll be able to deal with them. Let's, um, hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on a echo chamber, and uh, now you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Miller. I just want to say I really, really follow your show. I never missed it. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to know. In this country, the United States, I have a problem with alcohol. I, why is AA, which is invented in the 1920s or 30s, the only rehab that's offered? Isn't there any rational person out there that maybe doesn't agree with AA? That's a great question. And it's all that's offered. I even went to a therapist once. And she refused to see me if I didn't go to AA. Very interesting. And by the by, the way, what what is your what is your drink of choice? What do you drink? Vodka. And uh, how often? Pretty much every day. How much do you drink at the end of the day? What what's your total daily uh, consumption? A half pint, maybe. Half pint. A pint is uh, pints a pound the world around. So a pint, sixteen ounces. So you drink about eight ounces of yes. uh, of vodka a day. How old are you? I'm sixty-five. Wow, that's a good amount. I bet that keeps you uh, either wizzy or tired or both a lot of the time. Well, I go to work and I don't drink during the day, but I can't seem to get rid of the alcohol factor at night. When you come, in other words, you don't drink at all before five or six o'clock. Right. How and about on, how, okay. how about on the weekends when you're not working? Do you drink during the day then? No, yeah. On Sunday, I'll have a cocktail during the day, but otherwise, yeah. on the during the work week, you start in the evening. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't mix it. <laughs> how, how long have you been doing this? Oh, my God. Well, it's been more... 30, 40 years? Not this regularly. That's just worrying me. I would have it once in a while when I was younger. By the way, is it causing a problem since you don't do it at work, just in the evening? Yeah, because it's a little over the top. And my poor husband of 35 years has to put up with me. Why, do you act strange when you drink? Sometimes I act out. Oh. Not all the time. 
I can never, but I never know which will happen. Where do you, what city do you live in? Point Arena. Gee, I don't know what's happening down in Point Arena as a way to get you help, but let me get back to you. Thank you so much for sharing the story, and I'm gonna, uh, I'll, I'll give you your answer about the AA off the line. I'll, all right, thank yeah, you. Yeah, call again. That was very nice of okay. you. Bye. You know, this is a story that I've heard so much in, in my career, and that is a story of a, of a, of a person um, who, who maintains their work, who goes to work and, and, and does a good job and so on, and then comes home and drinks what they believe, and you, could, you heard what she said, is, a, is an inordinate amount of alcohol. I mean, eight, you know, half a pint, eight ounces of alcohol, hard spirits, is, is a great deal to drink every night. I didn't ask what her height and weight was, but, you know, I'm 6'4", 200 pounds, and if I drank four ounces a night, I'd be, uh, you know, falling asleep if not drunk. And so that's a, that's a lot of alcohol. And, and um, what, what purpose is it serving? What's the good that you're getting out of it, I'd ask? If you look at it from what, what, what in psychology we call a Darwinian evolutionary perspective, if there's a survival aspect, what's the survival aspect? What, what are you getting from this? What, what, how, is it, how is it healing your spirit? A ask the tough questions of yourself. What, what, where's the crimp in your spirit that the alcohol is perhaps insulating you from? Alcohol is, is anesthesia in, 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 when you're taking eight ounces of it. What, what wounds, what wounds need healing? Can you expand your heart to forgive and heal a thousand wounds? Is that your challenge? You're being challenged to look at yourself, 65 years of age, and you're drinking yourself into oblivion every single night. You're cutting off part of your life. It's very sad. I feel it as I'm talking to you. You're being challenged to look within at yourself and see what you can find out. I suggest you spend more time doing that and less time being worried about what AA doesn't do and why there aren't more programs. It is very sad. It's unfortunate that there aren't more programs, different kinds of programs, or even a coordinated program for, the, for, the, for what I call the five overs, the controllable impulse disorders, over-smoking, over-eating, over-drinking and drugging, over-gambling and over-spending. These are all things that are controllable by human beings. Smoking, eating, drinking, drugging, gambling, and spending. And when we don't, when we don't control them, when we go out of balance on these things, in addition to everything else, we're sending ourselves an important message that can be decoded. What are we saying to ourselves when we do these things? What are we saying to ourselves? Let's take this caller, see what the caller says. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the show. You're welcome. Um, I'd like to talk about obesity, which has become... Um, I hope there's no echo here. Um, the obesity, which has become um, the number one killer in front of starvation uh, worldwide. Yes. Um, it's a huge problem. Yes, um, pun intended. And um, I would like to talk about the advertising industry a little bit, and, and which is, to my mind, basically a form of propaganda because it's constantly pounded at us. Um, I would like to 
to say that fruits and vegetables, to buy them, it's very expensive. To go to McDonald's, it's much cheaper. And um, these fast foods, McDonald's, Lay's potato chips, Taco Bell, Kentucky Fried Chicken, all except Starbucks, which can have 800 upwards in calories per drink, um, it's, it's all laced with fat, sugar, and salt. And uh, as we know, these are not um, healthy in um, any large amounts, and they come in quite large amounts in these fast foods, um, which are also the, mostly, except for, excuse me, except for Starbucks, the cheapest foods. Um, I think the word comfort food has come out of this fast food industry. Um, comfort, we all want comfort in our lives, and if we hear the word comfort food and we start using that term, then we will want to move in that direction towards the fat, sugar, salt of these cheap foods. Um, I think it's a huge propaganda machine, um, as big as what Hitler was. Um, and uh, um, I would like you to uh, maybe talk about that a little bit. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> you may know that it's, it is one of my one of my favorite topics because it's a topic that I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm almost the most concerned about. I'm, the, the topic I'm most concerned about is the socioeconomic disparity in this country, the, the tension between the haves and the have-nots, the taking over the country by the 1%. But the second topic in my mind is, uh, uh, takes up my consciousness is the obesity and overweight and the selling of fat, of sugar and salt. But the two are connected, the obesity and the, and the socioeconomic, as you point out, because if, 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 if high-quality food costs more, then the people who have less are going to eat lower quality food. I mean, it's just obvious. And so they're going to be eating what we call empty calories, uh, high sugar, high carbohydrates, and are going to be putting on weight. And so the, the obesity epidemic is multi-determined. It is a spiritual, uh, um, a symbolic spiritual representation of oppression, as I think it is, but it's also a function of the advertising, as you say it is. And it's also a function of politics, which is who gets shelf space in the supermarket. And you've, many of you have read Mark L. Pollan's books, and you know that it's multiply determined, but it's huge, uh, again, pun intended. And if we don't turn it around, as, uh, as I've said before, by the year 2030, it's predicted that 87% of us will be obese or overweight. How does one maintain balance in a world which seems so uncertain is a letter that I got here. How does one maintain balance in a world which seems so uncertain? Balance includes maintaining one's weight. How do we do that? What are, what are the tools? Well, I, it, 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 it means putting together a preventive maintenance program for ourselves that we practice all our lives. This is not a quick fix solution. When, there's no one thing to do and say, okay, I'm going to be all right forever. It really, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a job. It's a chore. Life is to take care of this thing that we call the body that carries us around is a job. We've got to exercise this, this body. We've got to rest it. We've got to clear it. That's what some people call meditation. I call it mind clearing. We've got to clear it out because it gets congested with, with toxic waste, corporate waste, cor corporate sludge, one of my friends calls it, namely the impact of all the advertising on us that comes at us constantly. We've got to clear out our minds. 
So we've got to exercise it and rest it and clear it, and we've got to stretch it. You've got to stretch the muscles. You, we don't feel tension in our bones and our blood. You never heard of a person say, oh, my God, my bones are so tense today, or boy, my blood feels uptight. You know, that's not how it works. It, the muscles feel the, the tension in our bodies, and so if we keep them stretched, we feel less tension. If we let them tighten up, then we're going to feel it, tight muscle. Somebody's calling here, he's being so patient, or she's being so patient. Let's, I'll interrupt myself and let's take the call. Thanks for your patience. Well, Welcome. I hope it's worth it to your audience because you're covering so many subjects today. But I wanted to make a reference back to the SSRIs and use this opportunity to ask you to clarify something for me. Because I learned that uh, what cocaine does is block the reuptake of the dopamine between the neuron transmitters. And that that's what gives you this great rush of feeling good all at once. But after a bit, the neuron transmitters learn to produce more receptors on one side, and that um, the brain is so clever, it uses up the excess. So then, in order to just plain feel ordinarily good, you have to have the, um, the cocaine put into your body or something of that nature. You want me to describe that? Well, I would love that. Sure. I'd also like to know if this is somewhat close to being correct. Yeah. When you remove that, you therefore have a depletion, and it, it's like people don't, or we don't, humans don't realize that that type of system then demands uh, you not to feel so good while you go back to uh, balancing that um, system into a more of a normalcy, and that seems to be true with a lot of these substances. Yes, it is. Okay. The, the the bottom line is that whether you're taking something called the prescription medicine, which is legal, or you're taking something called an illicit medicine, which is illegal, the body doesn't know. We don't. Our bodies don't know what's illegal and what's legal. All the body knows is what's coming in and, and, and how we're going to deal with it once we swallow it, and it has to be metabolized by the system. So let's just move that out of the way right away. The body doesn't know legal, illegal, number one, number two, cocaine, whatever it is, SSRIs. It just knows something's coming in. It's got to deal with that something that's coming in. If you put, if we, when we put something in that gives us a spike in energy because of what it does within our system without going into the details. When we get a spike, if you just picture a flat line and you get a spike, that spike most often, if not always, is going to cause a drop. That's just how it is. You go up a ski, up to the top of the mountain, you, at some point you're going to be at the top of the mountain. And so you got to go down again to get off that mountain. You don't just stay up there forever. Well, I mean, you could try, and you end up sitting there in a loincloth for the rest of your life. But otherwise, you're going to come down from the mountain. Well, it's the same with these medicines. You go up off normality. You drink three cups of coffee, and you get a buzz. When the three cups wear off, you're not going back to normal again. You're going to go back down a little bit below normal. When you take some cocaine, you go off your normal, off your flat line, and you go, go pretty much straight up. With methamphetamine, you go almost straight up. That's a methamphetamine you could consider a turboprop cocaine. When you go up that high, you are eating up neurotransmitters in your, in your, in your system, and there is a depletion. And so then you're going to drop down, and you're going to drop down below the baseline and most likely feel some f loss of energy or what some uh, called depression. 
And typically, people who use these uh, the, the drugs, whether they're legal or illegal drugs, when they get down below the baseline, they want more b medicine because they want to get at least back up to normal. Remember, they started to use it because they wanted to be above normal. So, you know, there's nothing for nothing. When it comes to nutrition, protein gives you a softer, more even burn of energy than the carbohydrates. That's important to know. That's important to know when you decide what you're going to have for breakfast. That's why I've recommended for years that you have protein for breakfast because it's going to give you a more even burn. You're not going to then run into a dip. If you eat something, you eat something with sugar, have you know, your coffee in the morning, and then put sugar into the coffee, you're going to have a, a, a boost. But two hours later, when that wears off, you're going to have a drop and you're going to feel it. And then you're going to want, just like the lady said, you're going to want something again. There are people who drink coffee all day long. Well, that's not one of the worst things in the world, but you can get quite a depression from it afterwards. Okay, I hope the, uh, the answer is clear. It's sort of what goes up must come down, and think of it that way when you're using something to supplement uh, your energy. People have asked about uh, another call. Okay, let's take the other call. Uh, hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. I have two reflections to make. One is for the lady who was having symptoms of withdrawal after her uh, her uh, coming off of the medication. Yes, she took Paxil, and she told us about the symptoms, right? Right. Okay. Well, I have an experience. What she describes is similar to a symptom that I get, and mine came from having taken an overdose of aspirin. And that now, now I am on anti-inflammatory medication, and I know when I don't need any more because of that jet plane is what I yeah got By in the my ears. What what so, uh, what so, what anti-inflammatory are you on presently? Naproxen. Naproxen. Okay, yes. good. I'm glad you're not on Celebrex because I was just about to today. No. Okay, good. Why am I telling? I am. I am coming off of that for a natural remedy that seems to be working for me, which is raisin soaked in gin. Raisin soaked in gin. Yes. Fascinating. Yes, it's in the. It's in the. Uh, uh, anyway, the second thing I wanted to talk about was the one of the reasons that the AA process works. And if you can't do AA, it needs to be included. One of them is the uh, process of the steps, the amount of introspection that has to happen as a result of the process. Thank you. That's, that's good information, and thank you for calling in. Um, you heard what you said about the uh, AA, the, the 12 steps. They, that is an introspective process, and that's where the work does go on. Um, many people consider AA to be part of the recovery pie. It's a slice. It's not the whole pie. We have plenty of evidence on that. The whole pie consists of psychotherapy. It consists of leading a balanced life. It consists of uh, getting occupation uh, that you're happy with. Uh, it often consists of attending AA meetings. Uh, there can be uh, you know, many, many slices of each person's pie on how to put together a full recovery program in order to deal with one of these controllable, emphasized controllable impulse disorders, over-smoking, over-eating, over-drinking, and drugging, over-gambling, and over-spending. Over-spending is a big one, isn't it? 
going shopping and being treated well by the uh, salespeople and you get a good rush out of it and you end up broke. Uh, by the way, I want to mention something about these non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories, NASAIDs. NASAIDs. Um, Celebrex has a warning. So those of you who are on Celebrex, you want to discuss it with your physician. There's a 70% higher risk of an atrial fibrillation, an irregular heartbeat, amongst 32,000 adults who took Celebrex. Uh, you want to take that call, Michael? Sure, let's do it. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I was just thinking about all my friends doing, uh, with their kids doing the Halloween. Hello? Yeah, yeah I'm with you. And I was thinking how interesting it would be to have a comparison and contrast between giving a healthy three-year-old a pound of sugar or a half pound or whatever, 20 pieces of candy or whatever it is, and then giving a healthy, full-grown adult one line of cocaine, and a kind of a comparison contrast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see what you're getting at there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's madness to have these kids running around and, and being given you know, bags full of sugar and, um, and, and told, you know, allowed to eat it because it's some kind of a holiday. It is. It would be, it's a great, that's a great example. It would be like giving a bunch of adults, you know, bags full of cocaine one night a year and saying, here, go for it. Um, tradition, tradition, you know, are we stuck with it? Can we do something about it? I hope so. What about chronic fatigue? Chronic fatigue, there are a lot of folks out there suffering from some version of what they call chronic fatigue, and there's been a search for a virus that may be causing it, and there's new research out now by uh, Lancet, which is um, the most prestigious uh, journal, uh, medical journal in England, and they are saying that as of this moment, while there's no cure for chronic fatigue syndrome, there is also no link to virus. Just like, by the way, coming back to the mercury issue of earlier in the program, that at one point there was some considered link that was put out by a Dr. Wakefield in England between uh, the link between uh, mercury and vaccinations and, and uh, autism or Asperger's, and that has been debunked, and uh, Dr. Wakefield has actually lost his medical license uh, with regard to that whole issue. Um, Here's a letter, interesting letter here. My girlfriend and I call each other terrible names when we fight. What should we do about that? Well, Dr. John Gottman, one of the leading researchers on couples uh, in the United States, he prescribes five positives every time you call a loved one a negative. So you call somebody a name, you call your loved one, your wife, your husband, your lover, your sweetheart a name in, in the midst of the heat of, of, a, of an abrasion or a fight, then you need to come up with five positives in order to create a healing. So if you're listening and you want to try that out, you know, you can research John Gottman easily, Google him. He's, he's really quite a guy. Um, you want to try the five positives and call me up sometime and, and uh, tell me how it worked. Do we have time for another call, Michael? We don't have time. I'm sorry there, listener. We do not have time for another call. But I want to end on something today which I thought was really interesting, and that is it has to do with new research on kissing. 
Yes, the Kinsey Institute. Remember the Kinsey Institute, the famous Kinsey study? They did the most research on human sexuality that's probably ever been done in the history of mankind coming out of Indiana University. Well, here's their latest study. Kissing, snuggling, and caressing influences a man's overall happiness in his relationship more than orgasms according to a study of over 1,000 couples that was done by the, by the Kinsey Institute. So for those of you out there who are followers of old Kinsey, get with the kissing. Do it in public, do it in private. There's no law against kissing. There is no, believe it or not, we still don't have laws against kissing in this country. You can kiss in the bowling alley, you can probably even kiss in church. I've got to wrap it up now, so let me say, Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend Mike Delora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Savings Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.